This is Subversive, a podcast hosted by me, Alex Kashuta, to highlight hidden voices, uncommon perspectives, and our era's true intellectual elite, the anonymous poster. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so on Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. Thank you and enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Carl R. Truman. Uh, he is a theologian, uh, an ecclesiastical historian, professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College, and the author of many books, including the wonderful The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and his newest book, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Welcome, Carl. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Alexandra. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I've really, really enjoyed uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And I think this new book as well, it, it kind of rhymes with The Rise and Triumph. It's, it's, it's made to be um, a, a kind of a, not necessarily simplification, but as something that makes, makes it more accessible to a, a broader audience. It's kind of almost like a study companion to, to The Rise and Triumph. I mean, this is a, a kind of a unique selling proposition that you have. I haven't really seen anyone... <laughs> you know, move, move through this process. But what, what drove you to, to feel that this was necessary? Well, the, the, the smaller book, it really came out of a conversation with my friend Ryan Anderson, who's the uh, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, a, a conservative think tank in Washington, D.C. Uh, he, he liked the bigger book, but he called me and said, I, uh, the book, I enjoy the book, but there's a real problem. It's too big for people to read. Uh, he said, my constituency are uh, Washington, D.C. staffers traveling to work in the morning. I want you to do something that they can read while they're on the bus or the train or the tram or whatever, heading, uh, heading to work in the morning. Give them something where they can get the kernel of your argument uh, without the, the expansive footnotes, et cetera, et cetera. So that was what drove the, the shorter book. I couldn't have written the shorter book without the bigger book. I had to write the bigger book to get things clear in my own head and to provide the, the footnotes to justify some of my claims. Uh, but the little book uh, was, was really designed for, well, for busy people who don't have time to read uh, uh, hundreds of pages on a topic that, that's uh, maybe of interest to them, but it's not a priority in terms of day-to-day -day life. Yeah, and and the the bigger book, the Rise and Tribe of the Modern Self, is is a, a a very kind of vast study, a very scholarly approach. It includes um, you know many thinkers like like Philip Reith, which I was made familiar with by by your book, and it's a very interesting thinker, which I think is very much underrated. Um, Charles Taylor and and a lot of other um, yeah important thinkers on uh, Alistair McIntyre as well. So you you do a a, a broad sweeping overview of of these points and. Um, I, I want probably the best place to start is to to just define um, what is what is the self. I mean, kind of what what exactly is it that that you're focusing on in the book, and then we can go from there. Yeah, uh, there are various ways that we can use the term self. There's the the common sense way, where we 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 refer to the fact that each of us is aware of being, for want of a better term, a sphere of consciousness. You know, I'm aware I'm me and not you. I'm aware that I'm not Donald Trump. I'm not Mrs. Thatcher. I have a, a sense of my own existence as, as, as an individual being. That's not the way I'm using it in the book. In the book, by self, I mean the sense of, of who we are, uh, that which makes us feel valued or, or unvalued in life, how we think of our position 
within the world. I'm using self in the, in the sense of, I suppose we might say my self-esteem. Uh, what is it that makes me think that I'm special or not special? What is it that gets me out of bed in the morning? All of those things that, that go together to, to shape us, not just as individual self-consciousnesses, but also as, as individuals who think about the world and our place within it in a particular way. Hmm. And I think what what you highlight there is that this um, this conception of ourselves has has morphed through the ages, and that we've reached a certain point where um, the conception of of myself now would be maybe unrecognizable to my grandmother or my great grandmother. Um, I mean, how does how did this perspective shift happen throughout the ages? I mean, how how do these two perspectives differ? Yeah, I, I think the uh, the. The nature of the modern self is that we are, we tend to think of of who we are as as the feelings we have inside. The modern self is is a kind of psychological construction in many ways. The way I I've used I've used this illustration in in lectures. I use it I think in in the book to draw out the difference between uh, my my generation's understanding of what it means to be a self and say, I think you mentioned your grandmother, my, my grandfather's generation, uh, would be to think of something like job satisfaction. If, if I were to ask my grandfather, who was, he was a sheet metal worker. He worked in the industrial heartland of England. He worked in a factory. He did what I would consider to be a very boring and repetitive, tedious kind of job. If I ask my grandfather, grandfather, did, did you get job satisfaction from what you did? First of all, it would probably not be a question that he'd ever asked himself. He probably never thought in terms of, does my job satisfy, does it make me feel good? That would not have been a question he asked. Secondly, once I'd explained that that was what I was getting at, I think he'd respond something along the lines of, well, Yes, I got job satisfaction because it enabled me to fulfill my obligations towards those who are dependent upon me. It enabled me to feed and clothe my family. So his understanding of of his job is an outwardly directed one. It's all about him fulfilling his obligations to others. And underlying that, I think, is a notion of selfhood, his understanding of himself, what he is for. is He is there to fulfill his obligations towards others. If you ask me the same question, uh, I'm likely to give an answer along the lines of, I love teaching. It's, I find it great fun to stand in front of a class, teach students, seeing lights going on in, in eyes as complicated ideas suddenly become comprehensible. Yes, I get great job satisfaction. But notice the difference in my answer and my grandfather's answer. My answer is really all about me and how I feel. Yeah, my job pays the mortgage. It's allowed me to, to, to clothe and feed my family over the years. But that's not my first concern. My first concern is, does my job make me feel good? And I think that takes us to the heart of the modern self is preoccupied with wanting that inner psychological sense of well-being. Uh, and that requires, ultimately, the outside world to pander to my needs rather than me to see the outside world as authoritative and, and thus attune myself to the outside world. And, and what led to this, obviously, a huge shift in perspective? Um, you know, you, you mentioned many philosophers, and, but do you see kind of a, a causality between the philosophy and what happened in the world, or are there many factors that led to this? 
Yeah, I think there are many factors. I mean, one of the questions when you do uh, intellectual history, when you're looking at the history of how people think, one of the big questions is, you know, why did some ideas catch on and other ideas die out? Why did some apparently good ideas never catch on at all? And then you have to look at the wider social context in which uh, people are thinking. And I, I, I certainly think, and I trace this in the book, there's an intellectual genealogy. There is a move from figures such as Descartes and Rousseau who focus on the inner space upon the mind as being uh, foundational for authority. There's definitely an intellectual genealogy that leads from them to the present day where we place such tremendous authority on our feelings and on our inner psychological states. There's also, I think, a more contextual story as well, and, and that is the idea of, of me and my inner feelings having authority can only become plausible in a world where external authority is becoming weaker. So if I was to tell that story, certainly one would want to look at the West at least. And it's very Western narrative. I, I, I make no claim that my narrative in the book applies to every country on the face of the earth. But in Western Europe, uh, one would have to look at the Reformation. Uh, the, the breakdown of the authority of the church provides a context, in fact, provides sort of imperatives for this move inwards. If I can't look outwardly to the church for authority, where do I look? I think the development of economies in Western Europe, the development of technology, uh, making the world a more unstable, fluid, changeable place, that also means that it's difficult to look outward for those points by which I can anchor my identity in fixed externals. Think about uh, growing up, I'm guessing it would be the same in Romania as it was in England. If you grew up in the Middle Ages in Romania, you would probably have lived your whole life within a 40-mile radius of where you were born. That's what it would have been like in medieval England. Now we move all over the place. We think nothing of it, but psychologically, that means we, we think of the world as much less fixed and authoritative than it was. And when we lack these external points of reference for fixing our identity, for knowing who we are, we will look for other things that do that, other communities, or we'll look inward at our own feelings. So I think there's, a, there's an intellectual genealogy, but there's also, for want of a better term, a, a sociological genealogy of the rise of the modern self as well. So it seems to me that um, often in history it, it happens so that uh, the uh, the conditions loosen just enough uh, for kind of philosophers to come in and be the the muses for um, not necessarily uh, building an intellectual move but describing things that are already in motion and maybe adding fleshing them out with their yeah. with their uh, kind of intellect and and getting the ball rolling so to speak. Yes, and we see a good example of that with the, the issue of gender today, the radical separation that's taking place between gender and biological sex. Uh, Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto note that uh, the more mechanization proceeds, they say, the, the less the difference between biological difference between men and women will be significant. They're really thinking of production. You know, it, it takes a, a, pit, a pretty big, strong guy to wield a sledgehammer. Anybody can press a button that drives a machine that, that, that slams uh, the hammer down. So they're thinking that. But when you think of where we are now uh, on the gender issue, not only is it the workplace where this has been transformed, we're now seeing it in day-to-day -day life. That, well, you were born with a man's body, but 
we have technology that allows you to overcome that. And so the body ceases to have this external authority. And going to your point there, I think we see you see the development of technology and the development of what we might call you know, ideology going hand in hand, reinforcing each other uh, uh, at that particular point. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people don't realize this about um, feminism as well. I mean, because a lot of people say, okay, you know, feminism has corrupted the world. It's kind of this causal force in, in the rupture between men and women. But it feels to me that something like patriarchy was pretty much an iron rule of nature in the point where nature was the iron rule. You know, you had enemies at the gates. You had yeah. necessity of someone actually chopping wood and doing all the, you know, all the hard things that just physically couldn't, couldn't be done by women. Um, there were, there was no daycare that just weren't the, the abundance, the comforts and the amenities that, um, like I've described on this podcast before, mostly men created, but you know, these kind of, um, uh, lubricated the way for intellectual movements like, like feminism to, to, you know, be comfortable enough to even think about yes. possibilities in this realm, uh, yeah. because it just wasn't, it wasn't in any way conceivable by, you know, even, Maybe my great grandmother. Maybe my grandmother heard something about you know female female suffrage and stuff like that, yes. but, uh, but not uh, <laughs> not much much further in, in history. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely correct. And oddly, I think this is where um, some some of the, the the Marxist theorists of the early 20th century, the the, the 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 critical theorists, those who are really wrestling with how does thinking shape and interact with the material circumstances in which we live. I think they have some helpful insights here and make it clear that, you know, we're not simply a function of the material circumstances in which we exist, nor are we a function of mere ideas. There is always this interaction, this, this to use the Marxist terminology, there's always this dialectical relationship between the two that shapes who we are and, and how we behave. Yes, I think uh, the some some parts of the right are starting to warm up a little bit to um, critical theory, not embrace it wholeheartedly, but uh, like you said, there are insights uh, contained in there that just move beyond. I mean, conservatism was kind of tied to almost this libertarian, positivist, consent-based uh, thing, which now a lot of people on the right have realized is pretty much in bed with. Uh, you know, left libertarianism, which yeah. is essentially the thing we're fighting. It rhymes yes. very well. So uh, I think that's why, you know, people like the critical theorists have have some more things to say about, you know, the nature of truth, uh, perspectival knowing, all sorts of little things that, you know, just weren't interesting to the right because the idea was, okay, you know, the left is trading in, in falsehoods and it's clear and they're in power and, you know, their power can impose this. But uh, and we're the people who know the truth. You know, we're we're objective. And we're we're positivists, um, and uh, you know, the, I think these um, illusions are starting to break down a little bit. I mean, how do you see what uh, what's been happening with uh, the philosophy of the right wing? I don't know how closely you're following this, but yeah, um, I'm not. I mean, I'm I'm more. I mean, my background is a, is a historian, and I would say, yeah, coming from from England. You know, England generally, certainly the England that I grew up in was, well, when you move to the United States, you realize, yeah, I'm actually a pretty middle of the road political figure. When you move to a, a country like the United States, I guess I always regarded myself as, I suppose, right of center, but not radically so. 
I, I, last time I voted, I think in the in the UK it was over twenty years ago. I actually voted for the Liberal Democrat Party, the sort of centrist party. Uh, it's been interesting to me the way conservatism has moved uh, as I've observed it. Uh, if I had to point to a conservative thinker that has been a very positive influence on my own way of thinking, I think Roger Scruton uh, would be somebody that that I would go to. It's been interesting to me that the rise of groups, and it's interesting you raised critical theory there, it's been interesting to me the rise of a kind of right-wing thinking that's that's almost sort of Nietzschean in its orientation. There's almost a, a ruthlessness of seeing everything in terms of power relations uh, that I find, I suppose, worrying in many ways. And it's interesting that you drew a parallel with the left. There's a uh, when the, the discourse of politics simply becomes a matter of who can exert the most power, then I, I, that's not what I want from a conservative philosophy. I don't want mere war of all against all fighting for the culture. I want some coherent and uh, attractive understanding of what society as a whole uh, might look like. So I guess the whole Trump phenomenon interested me in the United States. I was, I've lived here for 20 years, over 20 years now. Uh, had I, I don't have a vote, but had I had a vote in 2016, I might have voted him for him, but really had to hold my nose to do it. Uh, what worried me was how many on the, on the conservative wing of things seemed to think he was the wave of the future. It wasn't the fact they voted for Trump that I found so interesting, is the fact that they thought this is, this is the direction we've got to go. And it struck me as a kind of burn it all to the ground kind of philosophy rather than traditional conservatism. And that's why in 2016, when Bernie Sanders, the very left-wing candidate, pulled out of the election, a, a significant section of his voters switched to Donald Trump, which confused people trying to look at the, the thing from a straight traditional left-right perspective. But if you look at it from a point of view of iconoclasm, burn it all down to the ground, makes a kind of sense. Yes, I mean, there there have been a lot of uh, shakeups since 2016. And I feel like the, the main lesson for the so-called kind of more fringe right, dissident right, uh, has been a lesson about power. I mean, they've seen essentially what happened when Trump went in power. This, this you know, obviously a fascist Nazi person that <laughs> the whole immune system of the so-called deep state or the state in general tried yeah. to reject in, in every way, you know, just the, just the, the, the massive uh, counterforce that that popped up to, to fight Trump. And it kind of, the lesson was that, okay, you know, we had the electoral victory um, in terms of actual real world consequences, in terms of how much power, you know, someone in that position is, if they're not actually wanted by the system, if they're just like a surprise, yeah. um, there is not much. So people... You know, if you're familiar with uh, with concepts like the cathedral and essentially kind of this uh, more more shadowy system that is fueled by the universities, but not represented by the university, has has major institutions in you know places like the New York Times, um, uh, essentially the the big media corporation yeah. CNN, and um, it's kind of this distributed system that doesn't need to be coordinated from the top because it's aligned with with elite status. So everyone kind of knows what you should believe because this is what the elites believe. That trickles down through media. I mean, if you've ever watched a movie made in the last 10 years, you'll know what I mean. It's it, it, oh, yeah. information is in there, you know, to, for you to 
to be diffused <laughs> into, into your system. So um, this is kind of what I, someone called Curtis Yarbin calls a cathedral. And it's, um, it's kind of this concept that, okay, the thing that we're fighting is not necessarily, you know, at the ballots, this guy or this guy. It's a whole system of beliefs that is very top down, but it's not aware of itself. It's kind of headless yeah. and distributed. So I don't know. And obviously there's a lesson about power here. Okay. It's Yeah. And I mean, that ties in very, you know, that's very close, of course, to what the, the post-structuralist thinker, Michel Foucault, was articulating relative to power. Of course, he was picked up and used by the left, by and large. He became a, a, something of a methodological icon for the left. What's interesting, of course, is that strictly speaking, his analysis of discourses of power is, is not political from that perspective. It's simply an analysis of the discourse of power. And it's been interesting seeing the Italian philosopher Giorgio uh, Agamben using Foucault's post-structuralist approach relative to government policies on things like COVID, et cetera, et cetera, and showing how you know, states of emergency, for example, the, the, the normative nature of the state of emergency uh, is a way, well, it's a discourse of power. It's a regime of truth. Uh, it's, it's fascinating seeing the, uh, the old, the, the, the gurus of the left of my student days are now very useful to the right because uh, uh, it's the left that, generally speaking, has the cultural power uh, these days. Exactly. And it's much easier to see the warping of narrative and the bending of truth when you're outside the bubble because, you know, your your uh, glasses are have a different uh, diopter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you can see it a little bit better, uh, especially if the, if the discourse is exactly against you and in and, and your beliefs. So it's much more more transparent. But yeah, it's uh, it's been uh, an, an interesting... Uh, <laughs> Um, evolution and yeah, kind of a part of the reason for this podcast to kind of document and invite people on who are going through this transition. I've had all sorts of ex-libertarians come on the show. I mean, libertarianism is falling out of fashion very fast. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's a lesson yes. on power in there as well. Um, yeah. And a lot of people concerned about technology. Um, I yeah. mean, you, you speak about technology as well. And I, I listened to a lecture of yours where you actually bring in... Um, Heidegger's essay on, on the question of technology. Oh, yeah. um, and I wonder, what, what did you take from that? Because that's also a, a piece of, of literature that is, is prized and people are very interested in it um, on the yeah. right. Yeah, I think for me, what, what was most helpful about that was, uh, I, I, it was that analogy he draws between, when he, when he talks about you know, building a bridge over a river or damming up the river to generate hydroelectric power reflects two different ways, really, of thinking about our relationship uh, to nature. The one, in a sense, respects the structure of nature and seeks to, to operate in conformity with it. The other one tilts us towards seeing nature as raw material that can be turned into something completely different. So that was the, the, the thing that, that I most appreciated about that essay, was really that particular point. And that got me then thinking about, you know, the, the role of, of technology in general. And you mentioned earlier on the, the, the rise uh, of interest in critical theory among more conservative thinkers. Uh, when you were talking about that, what came to my mind was, um, I, I'm thinking of uh, Adorno and Horkheimer's dialectic enlightenment, where they really bring out the, the, the reason and technological reason present themselves as liberating 
but can actually be enslaving. And my mind went to a trivial event. So I've, I've mentioned this in, in lectures, but I think of my smartphone. My smartphone, I think it liberates me because it allows me to communicate with my wife wherever I happen to be. Uh, but then I'm sitting in the airport a couple of months ago and I realized that I've chosen my seat in the airport uh, because I needed to recharge my phone. And there's a sort of, it's a trivial thing. And I was delighted to see, I think when I read uh, Yuval Noah Harari's uh, Homo Deus, he had exactly the same experience. I thought, oh, I'm not the only person uh, experiencing this. I suddenly realized, well, wow, you know, does my cell phone liberate me or does it actually restrict my freedom? Is, am I now restricted in where I can sit in the, in the airport? And I think that's one thing that, that, that Heidegger points towards and that we're going to have to wrestle with more and more in the coming years. To what extent does technology liberate us? And to what extent is it actually just another, you know, to use Weber's terminology, is it just another iron cage uh, in which we have effectively imprisoned ourselves? And I think that's a, a very, very interesting question. Yes, I think it's uh, it's also something that that shapes our um, conception of ourselves quite a lot, uh, especially in the especially with social media. Because I mean, the GPS app it doesn't really do that much, but um, this kind of infinite mirror that we love to step mm. into and um, comparison and all this uh, you know mimetic drives that that you know, we're, we're I don't know if you've subscribed to to Rene Girard's um, kind of a mimetic uh, theory but the idea that you know you, you you're stepping into these spaces where aspirational types of living um, from high status people are you know on uh, on display 24/7 and they're not only do you select them the algorithm then kind of understands what you like and then it starts right. feeding you similar dreams and similar visions and it's it's quite interesting but it's also um yeah it's it's it is warping of a of a certain relationship with the self i mean yeah. this is definitely an accelerant of the phenomenon you describe yeah and i think it's it's um it's the death knell of libertarianism <laughs> that we yeah. realize that actually uh, we, we are not as free. You know, even our conception of freedom now is shaped by technology. It's not a free conception of freedom. I first became aware of this when I read, uh, uh, I think it was Matthew Crawford's book, uh, The World Beyond Our Heads. I think the title is The yes. World Beyond Our Beyond Heads. Head, yeah. Yeah. There's a chapter in that book on how casinos operate that was extremely disturbing when you realize, wow, Actually, the, the, the slot machines are programmed to manipulate the user. And they'll even speak to you using voices, the tone of voice that they think will be most alluring to keep you there. And after I'd read that chapter, I thought, well, any, any libertarian who reads this chapter has got to realize that libertarianism is just not a practical possibility anymore because we are subject, potentially subject to an infinite amount of manipulation uh, through this. So yeah, technology, as you say, social media, but it was, it was there in casinos before it hit social media, the, this manipulative nature uh, yes. of the machine and of reality. Uh, I remember that chapter. It's one of the most striking in the book. I mean, it, it describes people um, who are in the casino for days, soiling themselves and, yes. you know, they're the best customers, you know, they, yes. they keep bringing yeah. them drinks. It's, yeah. it's, it's very dystopian uh, and very striking. My image of casinos was, you know, from James Bond movies where <laughs> it's all, it's good looking guys in tuxedos, beautiful women in gowns, you know, high rollers. It's not, 
very poor people soiling themselves in front of slot machines. It, that was a real eye-opener to me in many, many ways. Yes, I, um, yeah, that, that book I, I, I recommend it to, to anyone. It's, it's really eye-opening and it really um, makes you reconsider questions of, of agency, of consent-based law systems, of consent-based morality, um, I mean, is it, does, does the concept of consent come come into um, you know the, the the idea of of being a modern self? I mean, it seems that that's the way of of engaging with with the state with other people. It's all just you know, there's a barrier of consent, and nothing else matters. Yeah, and and I think one of the problems there is that consent is, I won't say impossible to define, but is incredibly difficult to define for precisely the reasons you know, Foucault would point out with discourses of power. Um, the hashtag Me Too movement, of course, very controversial, but one of the helpful things I think that it did was it raised uh, public consciousness about the complexity of consent, that establishing you know, what does it mean for a woman, a, a no-name woman desperate to get a job in a movie, can she consent? having sexual relations with a, a movie mogul like Harvey Weinstein? What does it mean when the power difference is so huge? Uh, and as I, I make the point in the book that as we move to this situation where sexual morality has been effectively eviscerated of any intrinsic moral value, we've moved to a position where sexual activity, the morality of sexual activity is pretty much determined by an extrinsic factor, the factor of consent. Uh, if two people, three people, five people, however many are up to something sexual and everybody's consenting, then it's okay. The problem then is A, consent is difficult to define and B, consent isn't even something we consistently require at law for a lot of things, particularly relative to children. And in the book, I make the point that you don't think that a morality, a sexual morality built upon consent is strong enough to protect children because we don't require children to consent to things that we have decided are good for them. Uh, my children did not consent to eating vegetables. They just had to do it. My children did not consent to going to school. They just had to do it because society decided these things are things they need to do. So, saying that we're safe with, with a sexual morality of consent, that's strong enough to keep children protected because children can't legally consent. That's not strong enough because actually the law does not respect children's consent as an absolute uh, right anyway. Yes. I mean, if you, if you listen into any sort of more, more libertarian discussions on this topic, I mean, it, it tends to slip a little bit because it's, um, you know, the, the more honest ones, you know, realize that, okay, you know, I, 18 is, a, is relatively arbitrary or whatever the age, uh, uh, age of consent is in, in different regions. Um, and then they're like, oh, you know, there has to be an arbitrary limit, but, uh, you know, it's, it is arbitrary. Yeah. So there's not really yeah. uh, a lot of, a lot of foundation except for the fact that, yeah, there has to be a limit and that's, that's going to be it. Um, but, that limit has been renegotiated, and um, I mean, what what perspective do you do you have on this? Because it's 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 uh, contentious. I mean, on the right, you also have a lot of people who um, 
seem to want to look at the relations between men and women in the same way that the left wants to look at this. And, and Richard Hanania had a really good essay on this recently on the, the right's constant outrage about um, female teachers raping uh, teenage boys. Um, and obviously there is an abuse going on. It's, you know, it's an unequal relationship. But the idea that the, the right takes kind of the, the framework of the left and then flips it on its head and says, okay, you know, um, this is obviously rape and, you know, the women should, you know, go into, you know, 15-year prison sentences and things like that. It is a bit different as well. So it feels to me that, you know, we're, everyone's kind of slipping into this strange consent legalistic frame that... Yeah. Uh, and I think that the problem there, and here I would here I would sort of kick into Christian theologian mode, really. I think the problem here is that uh, we're assuming that, um, that sex uh, has no intrinsic significance beyond that which is given to it by consent. And I think we're caught, you know, again, it's, it's kind of paradoxical or dialectical thing here because we know that's not true. We, we punish sexual crimes more severely than other crimes because we intuitively know that, you know, if, if I slap somebody in the face, that's unpleasant, but they'll get over it. If I sexually assault somebody, it might change their lives forever. Uh, I, I'd say to the students, you know, if, I, if a student was to punch me in the face five years from now, I'll be joking about it. Somebody sexually assaults me, that's never, I'm never going to joke about that. Uh, we understand that sexual acts in and of themselves have an intrinsic value. We understand that if Harvey Weinstein had been sticking his finger in the ears of uh, young uh, aspiring actresses, it would be creepy and weird, but it's not, it wouldn't have made him the monster that he is because he was penetrating their bodies in a specifically sexual way. We intuitively know that sex has more significance and that leads me to believe that whatever our sexual ethic is, it has to take account of sex is not cheap, it's not cost-free, it has an intrinsic power and value itself. And I'm influenced by, you know, I mentioned Roger Scruton earlier, I think Roger Scruton's book on sexual desire is is very, very good uh, on this. And his comment is, you know, we are sexual beings and therefore sexual activity is not about well, I think the way he puts it is this. Sexual acts, if somebody rapes you, they are taking from you that which only you can give. And that's what makes it so damaging. What they are taking from you in a very deep sense is yourself, your selfhood. You can only give that to somebody. That can only be truly given. Uh, and I, I think as long as we're trying to develop a sexual ethic that, that treats sex as a, just a species of recreation, we're going to end up with all kinds of problems that you know we instinctively know are problems, even if we can't articulate why that should be so. Yes, I mean, if I were to put on my libertarian hat now, I would ask you, like, what what's what is the difference between that which is given and that which is sold? I mean, prostitution. You know, people they essentially consensually enter into these uh, these contracts, and um, yeah. Uh, well, then I would, I would want to move, you know, then we're starting to move into the philosophy of desire. <laughs> and I would say sex should only truly take place as well when the other person is desired as an end in themselves. And that involves them being, you know, I think this is what Freud gets wrong about. Freud gets a lot right, I think, about sec the power of sexual desire. What Freud can't explain is 
why desire for one particular person can be so powerful. Because if sex is all about the pleasure of my own genitals, what, what does the other person really matter? And I would want to make the case for saying, well, the difference between uh, making love to your wife and having sex with a prostitute is precisely in the way I've described it there. I make love to my wife because she's a real person to me. And I want to make love to that particular person with that history and that relationship to me. I can have sex with a prostitute because, you know, making love only my wife will do. Having sex, anybody will do. And Scruton, again, he, he makes a nice distinction with what he calls faces and bodies. And he says, you know, true sexual erotic desire is desire for a face, a particular person. Um, misdirected, wrong sexual desire is really desire for my self-fulfillment, in which case anybody will do. Um, I think you, you said you're married, Alexander? Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm married too. On our wedding days, if somebody else had turned up to marry us, we wouldn't have gone through with the ceremony no. <laughs> because it was not about having sex, just having sexual relations, nor was it just about having children. It was about giving something of myself to that other, that specific other person. So if I was, it would take a long time to elaborate all that, but if I was up against a libertarian, I'd be wanting to, to focus in on what makes the particularity of love and sex so significant. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting to look at. It, it seems like this dimension itself is slowly fading. Um, you know, the particularity and uh, the intensity of of eroticism and uh, closeness and intimacy and things like that are, are slowly, I mean, if you look at even just statistics, if you want to be very kind of rational about this, you know, any, any sort of statistic shows that, um, you know, in, in some of the most apparently more most debauched times in history people are having less sex than, than usual yeah, young people yeah. less so i mean teen pregnancies are down just because people really are not sleeping sleeping with each yeah, other anymore it's yeah. like uh it's just you know, the the frisson of of uh, interacting with the other other uh, is is gone i mean yeah. something something so i mean do you, do you think that our uh, inward looking perspective is something that that might be might be a part of this it could be. I mean, I think uh, Mark Regneris's book, Cheap Sex, makes a strong case for saying that the, the pornography is giving people what they want sexually. And that, of course, means they don't have to have real sex. His point is, you know, 200 years ago, sex was expensive. Young guy wants to sleep with a, a girl. He's got to be clean. He's got to have a job. He's not only got to persuade her he's a good bet, he's got to persuade her family he's a good bet because if he sleeps with her, she's going to get pregnant. So guess what? They have to be married in order to have a, a stable uh, situation to protect uh, the fruits of, of their sexual relations. And Mark makes the point that today, particularly young guys, they can watch pornography, they can get their sexual pleasure that way. And it's very cheap. They don't have to bother making themselves attractive to young women. They don't have to invest in a relationship in order to, uh, to have sexual satisfaction. I mean, he makes the point that it's, it's not as good as the real thing, but it's good enough for them not to want to bother making the extra effort for the real thing. And I think that you know, pornography is almost certainly a component uh, in, in what's going on. Um, I think what you're pointing to there has broader implications than just sexual activity. I think that uh, there's a deep loss of the concept of friendship 
in our society. Uh, I was talking to a, a Christian worker in one of the, the local high schools uh, around here in Western Pennsylvania sometime in the last two years. And he was telling me that, I think he said around about 70 or 80% of the 12, 13-year-old girls in, in one class identified as, as lesbian, same-sex attracted. And I asked him why he thought that was, and his, his comment was, it's because we've not taught young people what friendship is, that you have two young girls, they have strong feelings for each other, and, and all we've done as a society is tell them, well, if you have strong feelings for somebody the same, it's got to be a sexual thing. No, it could actually be what we used to call deep, powerful, passionate friendship, which had no sexual connotations whatsoever. But we've really excluded, I think, that sort of category now. Um, so I think there's, when you talk about a loss of intimacy, it's not just a loss of sexual intimacy, I think we're witnessing in our society. It's a loss of real non-sexual intimacy as well. And there, again, technology probably plays a part in when people are just tweeting at each other or texting at each other. It's not the same as, you know, to use a very English analogy, it's not the same as sitting in the pub and buying a round of drinks for your friend and friends and, and sharing a glass of beer and, and entertaining stories together. Actual physical friendship, I think, is, is something we are, we're increasingly losing. Absolutely. And I feel like it's, uh, like you said, this is a, a very broad point about kind of this disembodiment. It's not, you know, we're, we're not present in our bodies because it doesn't really, we don't really have to be. And I feel like people tend to take the path, the path of least resistance with things. Like I, I admit, I, I have groceries, you know, ordered in because I have a small child and it's, it's a bit of a nightmare to take him to a supermarket. And it's really nice. I appreciate Technology is not all bad. It's good to use no, it for some no, things. No, but yes. I, there's also obviously something that I'm missing out on. You know, there's a bit of, of kind of the serendipitous socialization of just going to the store, of knowing the people, of uh, you know, if you order takeouts to be brought to you, you don't engage with the people at the restaurant and things like that. So yeah. you're just kind of slowly cutting out all of these opportunities to not just socialize, but also to practice socialization too. Um, you know, like I, I know a lot of people of my generation, even I'm a little bit, you know, not, not the greatest person on the phone. I prefer to send a text before I'm going to call someone. But I know people who are paralyzed by the concept of just calling someone out of the blue, you know, without prior announcement without a prior yeah. email, I'm going to call. So it's, it, it is really, um, there are a lot of skills in life and, and dealing with other people that you just lose and, and also tolerance for um, just the ambiguity of social relationships um, and also dealing with difficult people. You know, back in the day, you couldn't be mad at your baker because you wouldn't be getting any bread. Yes, <laughs> you yes. So yeah, you'd have yeah. to kind of negotiate difficult people, difficult solutions. So yeah, it just feels like all of these just, you know, they're, they're being melted away by easier, um, frictionless ways of engaging with, with the yeah. world. Yeah. And it goes back to Matthew Crawford's book, which of course is, it, you make some significant comments on this. I, I do think that that loss of Real. I mean, I just noticed I don't do Twitter myself, but occasionally I'll look at a, a couple of, you know, somebody will send me a Twitter thread where people have been falling out. My, my impression of Twitter is typically in Twitter debates, the temperature always rises uh, and the, the, the positions become more polarized. I've not taken part in many debates uh, in my time, but the debates I've taken part in, the temperatures tended to go down in them by and large because there are all these, you know, there's this subliminal body language. 
There's the ability to exchange a joke between speeches with the person. There's a humanity to in-person debating. It doesn't always work this way, but in my experience, there are more controls on keeping things calm and civilized when you're really in the physical presence uh, of somebody. Yeah, that's, that, that is a really, really good point. And it's kind of a very good um, diagnosis of what's going on on Twitter right now, because unfortunately I am on Twitter and I'm quite, <laughs> quite involved. So it, it feels like we've, we've gotten into an, not only the narcissism of small differences, the narcissism of minute, just microscopic <laughs> differences and constant schisms, constant faction bad, battling over I don't know, just the most ridiculous <laughs> questions about should uh, should men have wives? Should they change diapers? And all, all sorts of interesting, <laughs> I don't know. It's, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of stuff that I just worked out in the rough and ready common sense of life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you drew, drew your inspiration somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, good. I was always amazed. I, I reviewed, I think it was Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life a couple of years ago. And I said... The, the, one of the remarkable things about Jordan Peterson is he's so controversial because 12 Rules for Life, this was stuff my mum taught me. You know, it was just, this is how you live. You know, keep your bedroom tidy, that sort of stuff. Um, this is now controversial, apparently. So, it, it, yeah, we live in very, very interesting times. I, I wish that common sense as a category would somehow miraculously reappear over the horizon at some point. Of course, it's 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 reappearing, and it's called a reaction now. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, or fa Jordan fascism, Peterson, yeah. depending on who you yes. ask. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to also ask you about the the, the value of of social stigma because we're kind of in, a, in an era where it feels to me like the the last category of things that are stigmatized because we're not without social stigma. There's still a social stigma. Is the concept of stigma itself. It's the idea that you're being not inclusive, that you're, um, you're kind of, um, yeah, you're just not someone who's open enough to all the colors of the rainbow, all the possibilities in the world and all the ways other people find fulfillment. Um, so I, I wonder, um, what do you think about, um, maybe a return to social stigma and if it's, if it is even possible, because now we're about, you were kind of like, um, an authority of one, you know, I'm, I'm the self-creating entity that I, I invent everything about myself. I mean, is social stigma even possible and is it desirable in this age? Well, I think it's, uh, I think it is a reality. What we're seeing is, you know, inclusivity is really just the old exclusivity with new players. Uh, the, the, the rhetoric of inclusivity is being used in a very exclusive kind of way in that people who, were. uh, center of the culture or part of the cultural mainstream just five years ago are now regarded as loony cranks on, on its periphery. So I, I think that the, the inclusivity rhetoric really masks a very exclusive kind of agenda. I mean, it's very clear to me that uh, somebody with my views on gay marriage, for example, I'm not going to be included. You know, I'm definitely going to be subject to social stigma. So I just see inclusivity as a, a as the rhetoric of the new powerful. Uh, it's not that the new system we've got is more inclusive than the old system. It uses different rhetoric and different groups are in and different groups are out. But ultimately, uh, if, you know, if you have, if everybody's included, if there is no social stigma, then we don't have a society. You, know, you can't have a society where anything goes. That's complete anarchy. 
and there's nothing to hold it together as a coherent whole. So inclusivity is just a, a new way of talking about and defining uh, the boundaries where social stigma will start to apply. Uh, where I think it's... So first of all, like all societies require boundaries. It's a bit like all nations require borders. There have to be boundaries. There has to be social stigma. The debate is over who should be stigmatized and, and who not, I think. For those of us who are on our way to being socially stigmatized, if we're not there already, I think we need to think about this in terms of what, 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 what positive can we gain from this? And I think of, uh, think of the Jews in medieval Europe. I think of uh, Protestant nonconformists in 19th century England, marginal stigmatized communities that became very strong communities and became very successful precisely because they were not part of the cultural mainstream and they had to watch each other's backs. They had to be uh, careful in looking after each other. Uh, in 19th century England, because the Quakers could do virtually nothing, they had to make things and they became captains and powerhouses of industry. I think the thing uh, that I want to do at this point is not you know, debate so much social stigma as, okay, I accept the fact that I'm going to be socially stigmatized. What do I do with that? Do I just sit around and lament it or do I try to use it as some kind of an opportunity for building a community? And that's where I think the hope for you know, a return to more traditional kind of conservatism may come in because human beings want to belong. We all want to be in community. Uh, the human being who is happy being completely isolated is a very, very rare thing uh, indeed. Maybe what's coming is, is an opportunity for, particularly my own community, you know, the Christian, uh, the Christian uh, church, to think about, well, what does it mean to be a true community in a world that no longer accepts us uh, and regards us as a social good as it once did? Are there opportunities here? Yes. And have, have you found personally that um, the fact that there is a lot of outside pressure that has it kind of galvanized people around you? Have you found community yourself? Yeah. And I've struck up interesting. I mean, I'm a Protestant. Uh, some of my closest friends are now Catholics. Uh, typically in, in, in times past, uh, Catholics and Protestants would not have had much to do with each other. On yeah, a famously. Lot of, on a lot of things. <laughs> famously. Um, Sometimes we've been killing each other. Thankfully, those are days a long, long time ago. But it's, it's been interesting for me that I've found more and more in common with people that I didn't know I had anything in common with uh, until certain things started to emerge in our culture. We started the conversation talking about, uh, why did I write my little book? Because my friend Ryan Anderson suggested it. Ryan is a very conservative, devout Catholic. 20 years ago, our paths would probably not have crossed. Uh, now we have a, a rich and vibrant friendship. I can't speak for Ryan, but certainly his friendship with me has enriched my life tremendously. So I think there are, I have experienced um, some real blessings uh, that have come through uh, what's going on in the broader culture. It is, it is really interesting to me as well that um, a lot of people um, in the UK as well are picking up on um, Eastern right kind of Orthodox Christianity as well. That's you know, in, in the US and uh, like I said, in the UK, um, it's it's an up and coming religion and uh, it, it seems to be quite uh, popular in kind of intellectual circles as well. People see it as a, um, a more serious take on religion just because it 
you know, maybe a little bit less corrupted by not being a Western in this in the stricter sense. I mean, it's it's yeah. kind of more exotic. To me, it seems yeah. a bit strange because this is kind of the the church that I grew up around. It always seemed a little bit kind of heavy-handed and tiresome with the long rituals and all this stuff. And my family's Catholic and we're kind of I mean, cafeteria Catholic, <laughs> a little bit more yeah, light yeah. on on the time spent doing all of these yeah, rituals. Yeah. Uh, so it's it is really interesting to me that it's uh, it's you know it's it's gaining steam. Yeah, and it offers uh, at a time when the history of the West is in crisis. You're not allowed to be proud of the history of your nation anymore. You're not allowed to be patriotic. We live in a world of I mean, you referred to cafeteria uh, Catholicism. We have the same in Protestantism, uh, a kind of consumer driven thing that is detached from history or where history is really just, it's a souvenir. It's not really something that, that you're, you're into. I think uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, traditional forms of Catholicism, uh, these things uh, uh, strike uh, deep roots for those looking to find roots, looking to find a, a sense of, of belonging. So I can see the attraction. I have a colleague at Grove who's a convert to Eastern Orthodoxy. I have students who are converts to Eastern Orthodoxy. And when I, I ask my students why, they'll give an answer very similar to the one you've given. It'll be the grandeur of the liturgy has a grown-up feel to it that they've often not found in the Protestant churches they grew up in. And they feel that they belong to something that is bigger and deeper uh, than what the world around is now providing them with. Yes, yeah, so I feel like there's a kind of an aesthetic sense to it as well. And uh, yeah, the, the fact that it, it feels older, it's very old world, um, you know, with, uh, yeah, I, I just know yeah. that, yeah, it seems, I, I can understand it. I mean, and, and there's also a lot of, um, obviously every religion has very interesting scholars, but quite a lot of maybe underrated scholars uh, and people that people don't really read, like like Father Seraphim Rose and, and, you know, that are kind of now more interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's quite a lot of it being translated now from from Russian, Greek, and even Romanian. So yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting undiscovered space. And I feel like that's probably the yeah. appeal. I mean, and Seraphim Rose's little book on nihilism uh, is a very, you know, book written before its time, really. You know, nihilism is one of the big things, I think, that's eating away at our culture now. And, and that's a prophetic little book. So I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and then when you've got Dostoy, you know, my students love literature, Dostoyevsky, et cetera, et cetera, takes them straight into the, uh, the orthodox world. Hopefully without the Russian nationalism, but uh, that's another question. <laughs> I mean, depends. And everyone <laughs> takes what they can from uh, yes, from, from yes. the literature. Um, yeah, I think there's been quite a lot of uh, interest in Dostoevsky recently as well. And yeah. kind of as a, as a counterpoint or kind of as a little bit of a contrast to Nietzsche, which had a fairly similar life trajectory, but they ended up like theologically and philosophically in different places. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's interesting. There's actually an, an episode by a, a dear friend of the show who's been on the show. It's from the, from the Martyr Made podcast. And it is kind of a, I think it's quite a long episode, something Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, I don't remember exactly, but it's kind of like the, the, the path of their lives and the philosophy that accompanies it. It's just a really beautifully made episode. And I recommend it to, to everyone who's interested in either one of these thinkers because it's, yeah, very, very good. Interesting. Um, and we, we've come to the recommendations part of the show at the okay. end. Uh, this is a question that everyone gets. Um, it's a question about a subversive thinker in the spirit of the show um, that maybe people are not that familiar with or maybe is underrated or you think, you know, people should be more interested in. And yeah, it could be a writer. It could be any sort of type yeah. of figure. Good question. Um, 
If I hadn't mentioned him numerous times already, I'd have said Roger Scruton. I mean, Roger Scruton's been, uh, I love, he, he just writes so beautifully apart from anything else. But I think the, I'm going to go to the other end of the political spectrum at this point. Terry Eagleton, the English Marxist critic, who's always unpredictable as a Marxist. You know, he slams the new atheists, for example. I found Terry Eagleton over the years to be a very, he writes well, he's, he's witty, he's funny to read, which is very unusual in a Marxist theorist. Uh, but I, I think, Ter- I'm going to recommend Terry Eagleton, particularly his book, uh, The Illusions of Postmodernism. It's probably 30 years old now. I found that the single most helpful book I ever read on the postmodern moment. Uh, and it struck me as odd that here as a, as a Christian, I found strong points of affinity with the Marxist in his aversion to radical relativism. So I'm going to go for Terry Eagleton. Uh, and also, I recommend his little autobiography, The Gatekeeper. It's one of the funniest books I've ever read. It's not a Marxist philosophy book. It's a memoir. One of the funniest books I've ever read. But Terry Eagleton, I think, is the man I'm going to go for. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, definitely not, has not been recommended before. I just know Terry Eagleton as, I think he's also a science fiction writer. I think he's written. Don't think he writes science fiction. No, something like maybe else. He writes for Unheard now, which of course I think is the sort of ah, British equivalent of what of you're road, doing yeah. on the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, dissident opinion. So he's a dissident leftist, which makes him very interesting. That is interesting. I think there's um, there's a new, relatively new publication, not that new now, there's there's Compact, which is trying to do something similar, kind of bringing yeah. in, there's quite a lot of Marxist on Compact, which is not common for a so-called right-wing publication. But yeah, I think that's yeah. kind of the synthesis they're trying, they're aiming at. And maybe Terry Eagleton will find his way to Compact yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, the editor, Matt Schmitz, um, I actually said Grace at his wedding. He's an old friend from First Things Days. Uh, and he's definitely not a Marxist. But I noticed that he got Slavoj Zizek on, uh, on the editorial board. So yeah, that's a very interesting uh, uh, publication. Yeah, it comes back to the fact that, you know, the, the right is rediscovering some other avenues of truth, which is not non-traditional avenues for it. And I think a lot of the, the actual hardcore Marxists are disenfranchised and, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a good time to, to make strange bedfellows, I guess. Yeah, my own grandfather was a lifelong socialist, uh, but ended up voting uh, conservative in the 1980s. Precisely because of what we would now call identity politics. He felt that the left had abandoned the poor working man in favor of what he would have regarded as middle class bourgeois identities. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can echo that. I mean, my, my family's also been through every sort of ideology. Uh, yeah. I mean, not, not very extreme, but yeah, he, just in the sense that they've been persecuted by every, every regime that we've, we've had flow through this region. Right. So yeah. We've, yeah. <laughs> of which there have been quite a few, of course. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. Unfortunately. Yes. Um, yes. I want to thank you so much, uh, Professor Truman for coming on. Uh, this has been a pleasure and I want to encourage people very, very sincerely to read The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's, it's a beautiful book. And if you want a shorter version, uh, please buy Strange New World uh, if you need to read it on the, on the train and just absorb things uh, very rapidly. Um, thank you so much. And uh, I'm, I'm glad we could, we could have this conversation. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you very much for having me on. If you'd like to support my work and access more content, please consider subscribing through Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. See you next week.